feel a bit like Superman in reverse, duck into a closet, take off the cape, and put on street clothes. <laughs> so, well, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning to worship and honor you. We've confessed our sins and received your forgiveness. We've sung your praises. We've given back to you a portion of what you've given to us. All of this reminds us of our total dependence on you. Our hearts and our minds are now prepared to receive your word. Speak to us in these next few moments, we pray. Equip us and move us to do your will, to be your light in a broken and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, back in October, Pete's plan was to be with his family in Missouri over the Thanksgiving weekend, and he asked me at that time to fill in for him while he was gone. And as you recall, at that time, we were working our way through a sermon series on the book of Leviticus, so I thought I might speak to you on the doctrine of the atonement. The primary focus of Leviticus, as Randy mentioned, is God's instructions for how he was to be worshipped. These instructions called for the sacrifice of animals, the shedding of their blood to atone for the sins of the Israelites, both individually and collectively as a nation. Well, as you know, Pete's plans changed. He was here with us at Thanksgiving and is instead enjoying time with his family in Missouri right now. I'm still going to speak to you about the atonement, however, for, and providentially I think it's better, a better time to do it now than it was at the end of November, not only because we've completed Pete's series on Leviticus, but also in view of where we've been, where we are now, and where we're headed with regard to the liturgical calendar of the church. Consider the following. Since Thanksgiving, we've celebrated the season of Advent. The candles are still here at the front of the sanctuary. And as you know, Advent is a time when the church celebrates or anticipates the imminent arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. The ransom that's mentioned in this carol is the atonement paid on our behalf by Emmanuel. The second stanza of this carol reads, O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Death's dark shadows were put to flight by the atonement. The last Advent candle that we lit on Christmas Eve was in celebration of the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day. The third stanza of Joy to the World reads, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Christ's blessings flow out of the atonement. Today is December 28th. It's the fourth day of the Christmas season, which is also known as the 12 days of Christmas which end on January 5th. In other traditions and cultures, the 12 days of Christmas is also called Christmastide, and it's simply an extended time to celebrate the birth of Christ with gift giving and and festivals, Um, and it uh, celebrates the payment that Christ will go on to make on our behalf to atone for our sin. January 6th is the day of Epiphany, which actually covers a period of time that ends with Lent. The day of Epiphany is also known as Three Kings Day or the Day of the Kings. And the object of the Epiphany or the thing that's revealed is that God's plan of redemption, the atonement, 
is not just for the nation of Israel, but for the Gentiles, which the kings represent too. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27, we read from the Apostle Paul, who says he became a minister to the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make known the mystery hidden for ages and generations. That was the duration of the first advent, ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is the atonement and that it extends to all of God's people. Looking farther out under the church calendar, as I said, the day of Epiphany or the period of Epiphany ends with the beginning of Lent. Lent itself ends with Holy Week, which culminates in the, the crucifixion and finally Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. All of these things in one way or another direct our attention to the birth, the life, the death, and or the resurrection of Jesus, which taken as a whole accomplished the atonement. I had never looked at the church calendar like this before, and I'm, I'm thankful that in the wisdom of the church fathers, whoever they were, they assembled together in one place such a helpful tool. It's actually quite beautiful and proper that its focal point is Jesus, that it continually refers us back to Jesus. Because the incarnation and what was achieved through it is the pivotal moment in all of human history. Everything in the Old Testament from the fall of man forward looks to the coming of Messiah to the fulfillment of God's promise to restore a right relationship to his creation. It looks forward to the atonement. And everything from the cross forward to this very day and on into eternity derives its meaning and purpose from the atonement. Without the cross, nothing makes sense. All is vanity and we are without hope. My outline this morning is to first briefly define what we mean by the term atonement, and then to answer three questions. Number one, why was the atonement necessary? Number two, what did the atonement accomplish? And number three, what are the fruits of the atonement? And by the way, for the record, for the, record the atonement is such a rich and deep topic that there is no way to adequately express everything about it in a 20-minute sermon delivered by a layman. So of necessity, my comments will be, will be brief in nature. So let's start with the definition. By definition, atonement means a reparation for an offense or a payment made to satisfy a wrong. The language used is legal in nature. An aggrieved party has a claim against an offender and the offender must remit some form of payment to atone for the offense. The offending party must somehow satisfy or redeem the claim by way of a payment that is satisfactory to the claim holder. In a Christian context, we, in our sin, have offended God. God's holiness and justice demand payment to satisfy the wrong of which we are guilty. In his great love for us, God gave his son to die in our place. And in his great love for us, Jesus volunteered to die in our place and by his death on the cross, Jesus provided the payment to absorb God's wrath at our sin, making reconciliation with God possible. Moving on to the three questions, I'd like to direct your attention to an insert in your bulletin. On one side, you'll find the words to what will be our closing hymn, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. 
And on the other side, you'll find nine statements that are uh, headlined, What the Cross Means to Us. This is an adaptation from a lecture given by J.I. Packer in 1973 entitled, What Did the Cross Achieve? I've kind of skinnied it down a little bit and we'll use these nine points to answer the three questions um, that we're gonna discuss now. So the first question, why was the atonement necessary? Packer gives two reasons, or the first two items on your insert. First of all, God condones nothing. God condones nothing. And second of all, my sin merits God's judgment. Here Packer more fully says, my sin merits suffering and rejection from God's presence, and there is nothing I can do to remove it or to atone for it. When we ask the question, why was the atonement necessary, what we're really asking is, why was it necessary for Jesus to atone for our sins by death on the cross? In our unison scripture reading, the writer of Hebrews provides the answer. Because the sacrifices offered by the priests in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sin. Since this is so, God, in his love for us, had to provide another way for us to be redeemed from his wrath. He had to provide another way for our sins to be atoned. God's holiness and his justice make it impossible for him to tolerate our sin. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 reads, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God cannot tolerate our sin. His justice demands payment for our offense before reconciliation can occur. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin and then gave himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy God's claim against us, just as they did in the Levitical sacrificial system, except with animals. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who had no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's only against this proper understanding of God's holiness that we can begin to understand the depths of our sin, which is the second part of our answer. The Bible describes sin in many ways. It's almost on every page, really. Here are a few examples. Exodus 32.8, God says of the Israelites that they have turned out of the way he has commanded and thus sinned against him. Isaiah 53.6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Romans 3.10-12 says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if you continue verses 13 through 18, it gets even worse. Sin is simply a turning away from God. It's a rejecting of God. It's ignoring him and defying him. In its essence, sin is our attempt to replace God. Sin is yielding to the temptation to be like God, as the serpent told Eve in the garden. 
Sin is our desire and our attempt to supplant God from his rightful place in our lives, to live without any regard to him as creator, and to elevate our pleasure as the highest good and to work all things, including God, toward that end. Our depravity is total. Though by God's grace we are not all as evil as we might be in degree, our depravity is nonetheless total in extent. There is nothing that we do that is not tainted by our sin. The Bible says that even our so-called good deeds are as filthy rags. So more simply put, the atonement was necessary because God is holy and we are not. And that's a problem. And without a satisfactory substitute, we stand condemned by our own sin. Moving on to question number two, what did the atonement achieve? And here we'll look at items number three through seven on your insert. So just reading through them with some comments. It was by the atonement that Christ paid my penalty on the cross. It was by and through the atonement that Christ's righteousness becomes my own. Here Packer adds additional comments saying that it is through the atonement that I am justified. Pardon, acceptance, and sonship become mine. Because of the atonement, Christ's death for me is my sole ground of hope before God. The Puritan John Owen said of Christ, if he fulfilled not justice, I must. If he underwent not wrath, I must to eternity. It was through the atonement that Christ's death purchased my faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. And finally, the atonement, or through the atonement rather, Christ's death guarantees my preservation to glory. In short, the atonement bridged the gap between us and God. Christ's death on the cross accomplished what nothing else could, a permanent removal of our sin so that we might be declared righteous before God, preserved for his glory for all eternity. Returning again to our unison reading from Hebrews, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Question number three, what are the fruits of the atonement? The last two items on your insert are helpful here. First of all, from the atonement, we see what God has to say about his love for us. Christ's death speaks to God's love for me, and Christ's death calls and constrains me to a life of faithfulness. The atonement demonstrates God's love for us. Packer's original words here in this item say, Christ's death for me is the measure and pledge of the love of the Father and of the Son to me. Earlier in his lecture, Packer explains this a little more fully by saying the New Testament presents God's gift of his Son to die as the supreme expression of his love to us. And he quotes three passages of Scripture to support this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. 
In 1 John 4, 8 through 10, it says, God is love. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation for our sins is to absorb God's wrath on our behalf. And finally, in Romans 5, 8, it says, uh, no, that was Romans 5, 8, sorry. Uh, in like manner, the New Testament also presents Jesus's voluntary acceptance of death as his supreme expression of love to us. So the Father's presenta presentation of, uh, for the, so the Father's gift of his Son to die on our behalf is the Father's supreme expression of love, and the Son's voluntary acceptance of death is his supreme expression of love to us. So from the atonement, we see how much, we see the measure and the pledge of God's love for us. So from this, we derive much comfort, peace, and joy, all of which we've been singing about throughout the Christmas season. And all of this comes from the atonement. The second part of our answer to this question, Christ's death calls and constrains me to a life of faithfulness, could be expanded a bit by saying, having been saved by, from the wrath of God by virtue of Christ's atoning work on the cross, we are called and constrained to a life of faithfulness. And Packer's actual words there at the end are, we are called and constrained to trust, to worship, to love, and to serve. In other words, we're called to progress in our faith, to become more and more like Jesus. Again, Hebrews says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a process that we undergo for the duration of our lives here on earth. Paul says in Colossians, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. A fruit of the atonement is gratitude offered in response to the supreme act of love expressed to us by the Father and the Son at the cross. What calls and constrains us to be disciples of Christ is gratitude, abounding gratitude, Paul says, for the measure and pledge of the love of the Father and of the Son for us. In conclusion, the atonement is the heart of the gospel. Without the atonement, there is no good news. There is no way to come to the Father. There is no reconciliation with God, and we remain at war with him. God's claim against us, his demand for justice as against our sin, remains in place, and we are without hope. If you're here this morning and claim the name of Jesus, if you know him as your Lord and as your Savior, all of what we've been talking about has been a refresher for you. It's been a review of what's already taken place in your heart. And the comfort and the joy and the peace and the glad tidings we've been singing about throughout the Christmas season are very real to you. They resonate in your heart as true. And I pray that in keeping with the church calendar, you would continually have Christ in the forefront of your mind, seeking to grow more and more like him in all that you do, glorifying God and enjoying him forever, as the Catechism says. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, know that you have just heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for many. 
And since faith comes by hearing, my prayer for you is that today is the day marked down in eternity past by a holy, just, loving, and merciful God for you to have heard this message and that the Holy Spirit would now be at work in you and by his regenerating power change your heart of stone to a heart of flesh that you might turn from your sin and follow him all the days of your life to the praise of the Father. That concludes my remarks. A little bit faster than Pete. Let's close in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness to us, expressed in the gift of your Son to atone for our sin. And thank you, dear Jesus, for loving us too, for giving your life for our sake. Help us, Father, to always be mindful of the price paid to redeem us from the curse and to live our lives with abounding gratitude as we seek to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is in your insert. It's God rest you, Jerry, uh, Mary, gentlemen. Please rise and sing it together.